Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an unbelievable interstellar conversation to share with you. I just spoke with a man named Terry Vertz. Terry Vertz started his career as a fighter pilot, then became a test pilot, later became a space shuttle pilot, and again turned into an international space station commander. Uh, he has gone on from that unbelievable career path to become an author. He wrote a book just recently called How to Astronaut, really like a layman's uh, book about uh, space and becoming an astronaut. Uh, I'm excited to read it myself and also has a new podcast called Down to Earth, where we actually spoke about some of the conversations he's had on that show uh, here and very fascinating. Another thing that I'm very excited to dive into, uh, of course, with Terry's uh, experience, expansive career, I had plenty of questions to ask and could feel like I could ask him questions all day long. So without further delay, enjoy this unbelievable conversation with Colonel Terry Burtz. Hey, Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Glad to be here. This is awesome. Thank you. Uh, for the audience out there who has not heard about your absolutely unbelievable interstellar work, would you mind <laughs> telling them a little bit about yourself and how you got to this point today? Sure. Well, I started off uh, in my career as an Air Force pilot. I was an F-16 pilot and then test pilot. Then I went to NASA, um, spent 16 years there. As a space shuttle pilot, I flew on SES-130 on Endeavor and uh, spent two weeks. We, we finished building the ISS. And then a few years later, I went back on a Russian Soyuz and spent 200 days on that flight, um, eventually as a station commander. So spent a little over seven months in space. Since I've, uh, I left NASA a few years ago, I've written a couple of books. My most recent one is called How to Astronaut. Um, and I got a copy of it back there. And done a few film and TV projects. Um, I'm actually working on a startup that does renewable diesel. So we're both in the uh, kind of renewable energy universe. Yes. And um, I've also got a podcast out there called Down to Earth with Terry Verts, um, which has been fun. I was writing a blog for a while and uh, I kind of switched that effort into doing the podcast. Very cool. Well, there's, I mean, I could ask you questions about you know, starting just with the, you know, being a, a fighter pilot, I could, I could ask you questions for 10 hours, probably on just that. <laughs> so I'll try to contain myself, but I, I, I do, you know, the thing that comes to my mind immediately is what is the, where does that path of motivation and ambition start and how does it lead you from, you know, through so many uh, seemingly impossible or hard to reach obstacles? So that's a really interesting question because, um, you can teach skills and you can teach knowledge, but how do you teach motivation? And I think every, you know, every parent, how do you motivate your kid to make his bed or whatever? Um, and how do you teach ambition? 
And I don't know that you can. I mean, there's some, some things are nature, some things are nurture. And to, to a certain extent, you have to be self-motivated, you know, or, you, or you're never going to achieve, you know, whatever it is you want to achieve. So some of that just has to come from within. Now you can, I think you can work on your motivation and your ambition and, you know, you can kind of get yourself off the couch and kick yourself in the butt, but it, it you know, it's got to come from within. It, it can't come from someone else. Someone else can't say, you really need to be a doctor. It has to, you have to want to be a doctor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, what's interesting about, you know, what I find so interesting about your career is that when you were born in the early sixties in uh, just kind of the fledging days of the space race. And, you know, like yeah. I think today a kid can grow up and they can say, I want to be an astronaut back then. It's not even a tangible position <laughs> that even exists yet. It's truly, right. <laughs> uh, outside the bounds of, of earth. Right. So, where did it begin for you to even, uh, you know, start sort of go on that trajectory? And what was it like as it continued beyond, you know, sort of maybe standard military, you know, kind of positions and things like that? So for me, I was actually in kindergarten. I read a book about Apollo because um, it had been a few years since Apollo happened. And um, that's kind of what got me motivated. I was like, wow, astronauts are cool and I want to go to the moon. Um, so I grew up with pictures of airplanes and rockets and galaxies on the, on the wall when I was a boy. Uh, so that, that's really where it started. But I think most astronauts, my age, you know, from the nineties and two thousands and in 2010s, you know, we were all kind of motivated by Apollo. That's what Jeff Bezos just launched his rocket on the anniversary of the moon landing on July 20th. Um, because that's what inspired him. That's what inspired Elon Musk. That's what inspired a lot of guys in their forties and fifties and sixties nowadays. Yeah. It's what, what are your thoughts on the gap that has occurred in the space, uh, space exploration in general? You know, when I was young and, and the space shuttle program was still going, you know, the sort of the turn of the millennia, you would think that we would already be, you know, habitating the moon or something like that. And it seemed as if there was a, you know, just a lull in excitement or funding or something like that as far as exploring space and it's just been recently i'd say with you know people like elon musk and, and jeff bezos that we're starting to see that reemergence in the private sector re-inspire people how did it what was it like for you sort of experiencing that, that yeah it, it was it, you know when, when spacex finally launched uh last year with with people from florida I had the LeBron James reaction. It was like, it's about damn time because <laughs> it's been, it's been a decade. Um, and you know, some of that was we canceled the shuttle program, which made sense, but we also canceled the follow on to the shuttle program for a lot of reasons, political reasons. And it was, there was some misguided decision-making happening back in 2010 um, that led to a decade gap. So hopefully, you know, now that we're flying again, we can get back, but there's there's still never there's never going to be another space shuttle. The space shuttle was an incredible rocket, um, but if we would have just kept the Saturn V, you know, just launched it once every few years on a very low flight rate, we would have a heavy lift rocket. As it is now, we have this thing called SLS, but it's been it was really born in 2005, and it's might fly next year unmanned once, and then it's you know, if we fully fund it, it'll fly once per year. And it's just, it's amazing how many years and how many billions of dollars it's taken to fly something that, 
you know, and, and because they're going to put the capsule on top of it, that's going to take up most of its payloads. So it's not really going to have that much extra space to put moon landers and deep space payloads on there. So anyway, I kind of wish we just would have kept the Saturn V going. That would have been a lot better for everybody. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm where, where do you stand as far as, you know, the private versus public sector being involved in this space? One thing that was so interesting to me about Elon Musk and what he did with SpaceX was seeing how much cheaper it really could be, uh, you know, if you're spending your own money as opposed to, you know, being on the government dollar. But of course, you, know, you couldn't do one without the other. Well, right, exactly. Now, a lot of SpaceX has been funded by government dollars, and Elon will be the first to tell you that. They do have commercial customers now, um, but a, a lot of that was subsidized through, not subsidized, but it was government contracts. Mm-hmm. Just like Apollo and the space shuttle were built by private companies. I mean, Grumman and Rockwell and Boeing and Lockheed, those are all private companies, um, but they're getting, it, it was very much, the government was intimately involved with, with SpaceX, the government is much less involved. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I'm a big fan of private companies. I think that's where innovation comes from. The government, we used to joke at NASA, you know, we put the no in innovation. Um, it's, you know, it's a government organization. And even though it's NASA and it's really amazing, there's the, the young people there are really cool. It's, they're great people. It's still government. And so there's only so much innovation that's going to happen. Um, but you, you mentioned that SpaceX was so cheap. At, actually, they charge more per pound of, for cargo than the space shuttle cost. Um, which shocked me because when I was researching my book, when I was researching how to astronaut and the one before that view from above, I wrote chapters about cargo and sure enough, the SpaceX cost is more per pound than what the space shuttle could do, which everybody makes it sound like it's 10 times cheaper. It's not. Um, I think to launch normal satellites, uh, you know, a telecommunication satellite or whatever, Falcons are cheaper than previous Atlas and Deltas that we had, rockets that we had. But um, yeah, the dollar per kilogram to the space station is is not cheaper. And he just raised price by 50%. Really? Um, yeah. The, wow. la- the I think last year, the contract that just was let to SpaceX for cargo was the price went up 50%. Now, he was probably undercharging before just to get the contract. And, you know, you underbid and then once you get it, then you raise the price. But uh, yeah, it's not it's not as cheap as you might think. Very interesting. Yes, I definitely have my facts mixed up there. Perhaps what I was thinking of was how you know in the bidding market, SpaceX compared to companies like Boeing uh, or Lockheed, I believe yeah. that were also contenders, and how sort of undercut their bids quite a bit. Yeah, his his moon lander bid was half of what you know. Um, I think both of the others or one of the other, there are three companies trying to get the moon lander bid and, and Elon really dramatically underbid them. And so Nat, and NASA picked that one, believe it or not, the, the, <laughs> the awards usually go to the lowest bidder. John Glenn had a joke about, you know, being nervous about flying on a rocket built by the lowest bidder. Um, and, and I teach a case actually at Harvard business school about the challenger accident and, and the Columbia accidents. And uh, when you, when we analyze, the Thiokol, which is a contractor for the solid rocket boosters that caused the Challenger accident, um, NASA gave them a rating and they got the worst of three for technical, but the best of three for management. And what that really meant was they were the cheapest. <laughs> so wow. the, the bid went to the lowest bidder. 
Yeah, it's a really challenging dynamic to, to balance out because on one hand, of course, you want to be able to maximize your dollar and get the yeah. most out of it, but you don't want to get the discount rocket going to space, right? Well, as a taxpayer, I don't want to pay more taxes for the same thing. So I want the government to get the best deal possible, of course. So it, 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 and contractors work hard and they're, you know, they're trying to be safe and I get that. But anyway, it was just kind of a funny, uh, a funny dynamic. Yeah, that is pretty it. It's interesting. It's fascinating to think about how you make that decision in a responsible way, and and you know who's who has to make that decision. Ultimately, it's it's got to be challenging. Yeah, I, I'm curious. You know, it, especially with your military background, the military and space exploration, especially you know in the past couple of years, the founding of Space Force, they're always sort of been intertwined up until now. Do you see that separation coming in the future? Do you think it'll ever happen? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it's a bad thing? Uh, the separation between civilian so, and space or military? It's called the, the decoupling of, of military space and maybe civilian yeah. space. Now, you know, I think that happened a long time ago. Eisenhower formed NASA back in 1958, I think it was. And um, uh, it was it used to be NACA. And he did that very specifically to have a civilian peaceful exploration agency. And the Air Force Space Command has been the main focus of military space until a few years ago when space force was created. But um, that's always been two or three times the size of NASA. Plus you add in the NRO and other agencies that have assets. Um, NASA is relatively small in the big space pie for sure. How, uh, how do you feel about the competitive markets place for space exploration. You know, I think it's something that Americans have been able to be comfortable with for decades or feeling like we're number one in this area, perhaps in the early cold war, you know, with the initial space race against the Soviet union, there's sort of a a tension there, but now it seems like it's, it, you know, especially as technology continues to increase, there should be more players in the game. China's a hundred percent in the space game um they've recently landed two rovers on the moon one of them on the far side of the moon they landed a rover on mars this year with us which was a that's a major not a lander a rover on mars which is a major accomplishment um they just they're building a space station that's going to be similar to russia's old mirror station so they're behind us in terms of timeline but they are making progress right they're not static um the russians have been static they haven't done anything new since the 70s um, that's not true for the Chinese. The Chinese are, you know, definitely gaining. So that I think that competition will be good. That competition is going to be really tough for companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and others. So for years, the Russians dominated the launch market because they were the cheapest. Uh, but they've had some quality issues. They've had some rockets blowing up, including when I was in space. I got a chapter about that in my book. Um, and SpaceX has really undercut the the Russians, if you look at the global launch market, it used to be Russia and America for commercial launches. And when SpaceX happened, it, it did that. I mean, SpaceX just dominated. But the Chinese are very close behind. They've been copying a lot of our technology. Um, they are not trying to just coexist. They're trying to win in that market. So we're going to have some very serious launch service competition from China in the next five years, I think. Now, this question may, hopefully it does not come off as grim or anything, but, you know, do you feel the United States is up for the task of competing in this race with China's uh, technology and their growing program? Um, 
competing with China's technology is not a problem. It's when we're competing with our own technology that that becomes a bigger problem. Um, but yes, I I I think we are in aerospace. America does very well. We've always have. Um, we need to continue to do well. We need to continue to pump out engineers and scientists. Uh, China pumps out a lot of engineers more than us, and a lot of them are trained here in America. And yes. So we're you know basically we're training our. It's like we're the Yankees are letting the Red Sox go to spring training with them. Um, is what is basically what's happening. So, you know, that's something that we need to be aware of. There's been some recent federal government initiatives to, you know, try and help certain industries. There's only so much the federal government can do. You know, it needs to come. Kids in school need to be excited and motivated and realize they need to work hard. Um, one of the problems with being on top, it's like the old Rocky movie when Rocky got lazy and, you know, Clubber Lang was was hungry and he was ready to come get him and you know, there's something to being hungry and the, and the Chinese have been very hungry for a long time and they, and they want to win. And, and they're not thinking about the next election cycle or quarterly earnings reports. They're thinking about 21st century, you know, yes. and 22nd, 22nd century. And that's kind of the, the view that they have. And we're, and we're, and we're checking our Twitter feed, you know? <laughs> so yes, there, there's a, there's a big, um, there's a big disconnect in the, in terms of philosophies. And this sort of also comes back to, you know, the system of choosing, you know, kind of the economy and politics around these programs, which is like you mentioned, we're in the United States are very focused on the next election cycle. Um, and the, the innovation has to be, you know, you have to really push hard during any one administration to get major progress. Whereas like you also mentioned, China is they're They're not thinking four years ahead. They're thinking a hundred years ahead. Yeah. And they also, operate under a system where they can, you know, the industry and government are directly intertwined and there's no secrets about it. You're, you're in the solar industry, right? I'm in the solar industry. <laughs> yes. Correct. Right. Could you mean, tell? Where, where are solar panels made? I mean, yes, like yeah, yeah. they're made in China. And this was something that I noticed, you know, is very close to the heart because of course my clients want to, if the option existed to have solar panels that were American made, even just American assembled, they would right. choose that option and we would love to provide that option. But back in like 2008 in the, uh, you know, when the United States started doing some things for solar, they made a catastrophic investment in a company called Solyndra, which was like unproven. And, you know, I could go down that rabbit hole all day while the Chinese just focused on, you know, sort of standard PV panels and developed that technology to a point that we are drastically behind there and we are not manufacturing not even close to the same quality or the same volume of panels. Yeah. I, the, the case study and what happened to the solar industry is, is really telling. And we were kind of going down a path of that happening and more than just solar. So thankfully, I think the brakes have been put on and people have started to realize, and uh, we need to have some type of decoupling, not entire decoupling. And we need to engage and work with them um, because America and China are number one and number two. Um, Militarily, economically, geopolitical, influence-wise, you know, America and China are number one and number two. But we have very, very different philosophies. Um, they are blatant about their desire to dominate, and there are no rights for people in China. A good friend of mine got arrested last year. She was a journalist, and she just disappeared. They drag her out in public in chains every once in a while. She was one of their top journalists. And, um, wow. you know, that's just how they, that, that's how they do it. They, Hong Kong is, is finished, you know, 
Hong Kong was this amazing place economically. There was freedom. There was international agreements in place. And then it just ended. Um, so uh, we need to have our eyes wide open, I think, when we're dealing with that. And the and the 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 surveillance state that's happening there, you know, like everything about everybody is monitored and can be tracked by the state. And the it's not government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's government, you know, I get over the people, really. Yes. So anyway, it's it's a it's a very interesting thing. And and solar the solar industry, uh, manufacturing in certain segments, but solar might be the, the, you know, the prime example of what happens when we let things go over there. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel it should be a canary in the coal mine sort of situation which should ring alarm bells and everyone should, you know, realize, uh, you know, how important it is to bring that manufacturing back home. Well, Absolutely. And and the problem, we're so intertwined with each other. And, and you know, Trump had his, his tariff war, trade war with China, but we ended up paying for it because they stopped buying our farmers soybeans and then we had to pay our farmers subsidies. And, you know, it's like be, because we're so intertwined, we don't have any um, tools to use diplomatically when they do a massive cyber attack like they just did. We can put sanctions on Russia because we're not intertwined and economically they're not that powerful, but we, we literally have no tools against China. Of course, we're not going to have any military action and we can't even really take economic action because it hurts us as much or more as it hurts them. So that, that, that's something that isn't discussed a lot, but it, we really need to keep that in mind that there's a country that there is no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of religion. Uh, in fact, I would... I hate to plug it so shamelessly, but I'm no, going please. to my, my podcast down to earth with Terry Virch. Last week I had a guy named Kuzat and Arbin, but Kuzat was a Uyghur. He was a refugee from China, uh, escaped to Turkey for two years and made it to America. now he's running a business. He's got the wow. best, he's got the most inspirational story that I've ever heard. It's a really cool story, but he, he talked a lot about what life was like in China and what was happening there. And I, I think everybody needs to hear that because it's a it's a it's a great story from his from a inspirational immigration point of view. But what's happening over there is pretty awful. It's certainly a cautionary tale as well, I'm sure. Yeah. And there's uh, and this is why I'm I'm happy that you're you know sort of able to speak on this is when we're in a position where I you know, personally, I've, I've interviewed other people on the show as well. I'm very interested in education and, uh, you know, sort of yeah. optimizing education, especially for, for, you know, young kids to be able yeah. to excel in these pathways, uh, where it just doesn't seem like our education system is even designed to produce productive people. Um, yeah. You know, Pete, I wish they would teach, you know, how to balance a checkbook and what credit cards mean, you know, that yes. kind of basic finance, kids who graduate from high school need to understand that, um, that, and that there are some practical things, but you know, America has the best of the best. That's why all the Chinese kids come here because we are really are the best, but we also have some pretty bad too. We have a, in in math, this would be a high standard deviation, like, like on this, on the high end, we're really good. And on the low end, we're really bad. And so, we need to bring up the high end is good. Let's keep it there. But we need to bring up the low end to make sure all kids have opportunities because they don't in America now. That's, and that's really a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's I can't help but to imagine some sort of Ender's Game like future where, you know, we're focused on that one end of the deviation and, 
you know, right. trying to raise that as much as possible to just be competitive in this space. Because, you know, I, I'm sure uh, if it's winner take, if it's a winner take all and uh, China is very much motivated to be number one, they're, you know, certainly going to do something similar where we may be insisting on, uh, you know, education reforms that are going, you know, not really optimized towards uh, STEM and different fields like that, but more so optimized towards things like just being like introducing diversity and the ideas of these, uh, you know, sort of modern political right. trends, <laughs> let's say. Right. Um, so, you know, it's like, where does that leave us as a country? And, and, you know, again, from your perspective, being someone that, you know, has kind of been at the, at the, uh, the pinnacle of American innovation, uh, being a part of the international space station and really that whole effort. It's like, you know, it's where does that, where, what, what obstacles do you see need to be changed the most to get us on the right track? Um, I think we need to, um, and, and I don't want to be too negative about education because there really are amazing things out there. I do. Absolutely. I do speaking for kids. You know, they get to see astronauts on Zoom and there's robotics clubs and there's all kinds of educational things if you want to do it. But that's really true about all aspects of life. If you're really into something, you can learn it, you can do it, you can experience it. But if you're not into it, you're never going to be exposed to it at all. Whereas, you know, back in the 20th century, um, you know, everybody kind of watched the same TV channel. Everybody had a similar, or many people had similar education. We all kind of had a common starting point. Now everything's become so fractured. If you're the kind of person that's self-motivated, again, it's back to that self-motivation, you can really do amazing things. But if you're not that person, or if you don't go to a good school and you don't have good teachers, you're not ever going to get exposed to it and you'll never get the, you'll never get the opportunities. So that is one of the things we need to focus on is making sure kids get more opportunities. In, in your own life, were you always highly ambitious or did opportunity sort of, how, how did, how did your own career evolve? Did it go in the direction that you thought it would? And did you anticipate just sort of uh, reaching for that kind of level of success at an early age or did that kind of come about in a different way? No, I was always very ambitious. And I mean, I grew up middle class. Like it's a bad thing. You're like, Oh no. Well, you know, <laughs> I grew up very middle-class in suburban Maryland. Um, I was the first person in my immediate family to go to college. So I wasn't, you know, born in with a silver spoon by any stretch. Um, I went to the air force Academy, which was free, you know, like I, I got paid to go there. So, um, I went through public school. So I had a, I think I had a very kind of (laughs) average experience growing up, but I did go to a very good public school. The, the, I was in Howard County, Maryland, which is right in between Baltimore and Washington. And, so I had great teachers. Um, most of the kids went to college. And so I, I always had people encouraging me to do what I want to do. No one thought I would be an astronaut. Everyone kind of rolled their eyes and said, oh, you should be an accountant or whatever. But, it, you know, it, there was, they weren't encouraging me to go be a drug dealer or they weren't, you know, making fun of me because I want to go to college, which some kids deal with those things, right? Unfortunately. Yeah. So, so I, 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 was, I was fortunate. My parents supported me. They, they had never done what I did, but they, I was lucky to have my parents who, like they got me a telescope and they got me a computer. And then I had to, I had to learn how to use the telescope. I had to learn how to program the computer, but they supported me with that stuff. Where was the segue between, you know, like your military experience and, you know, actually getting involved with NASA? Well, the path, if you, I read a book called the right stuff when I was in high school and that, 
that's how I figured out how to become an astronaut. So uh, I went to be a fighter pilot and then I went to test pilot school, which is a very different track. Um, and then I applied to NASA and I got, I got, I got, I got hired. I applied when I was still a test pilot school. I was still a student. So, um, I was the youngest pilot there at NASA. I was, I was very lucky that I got picked young, but, um, the, you know, there's a lesson. If you don't go for it, you're not going to get it. So what I always tell people is don't tell yourself, no, that was kind of my career lesson learned. That's fantastic. But what is it? Who is that book by? Uh, the right stuff is by Tom Wolf. One wow. of the best books. It's one of the best books of all time. If you ever read the right stuff, you got to read. The movie is pretty good too. 1983 movie. It is aged very, very well. It's a, it, it, it's a great film. It's a great book. That's fascinating. That taught you how to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's about the earth. It's about Chuck Yeager and the early Mercury astronauts. Wow. That's fat. Yeah. Certainly adding that to my list. Yeah. Are there any other books that you feel have uh, influenced your career trajectory? Um, you know, I used to like science fiction as a kid, and um, Arthur Clarke and Isaac Asimov were my two favorite. There's a guy named Jose Farmer, I think, the River Trilogy. But the Arthur Clarke book that I love the most was called Rendezvous with Rama, which is a really, it's this cylinder comes flying through the solar system and um, they go rendezvous with it and they realize it's full of robots and it, it's a pretty cool, it's a very cool book. Um, but uh, uh, trying to think of other books. I'm reading of Mice and Men now. It's an interesting <laughs> book. I, I never, I I was not necessarily a reader. I, the only book I read in high school was um, Death of a Salesman because it was like 50 pages long. Mm-hmm. I was a terrible English student. I tortured my English teachers. I'm sure I was the least likely to write a book. But And now here I am. I've got several books published. I got another one coming out next year. So, And I love writing. So that that's definitely a huge career change for me. It's, it's absolutely massive. You know, some people will just be an author their entire life, or they can just have a podcast or just, just have gone through the military experience. Um, You've combined all that plus going to space and be an astronaut and all those things. And that's, what's sort of interesting to me is this, there's a a variety of skills coming into play here. There's a variety of, uh, there's a talent stack at play here. That is, you know, one that, uh, I think for most people, they, they have a hard time imagining themselves doing a variety of these different things. That's what sort of cooled me and what's, you know, I'm sort of asking you earlier about where did this motivation begin? Where did that vision begin? Because if you don't have, it's hard to have like a role model that can do so many different things that you can see yourself also accomplishing those. Well, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's unique. And I know I'm weird. I know most people don't do the kinds of things that I do. I, I get that. Um, yeah, just had a thought. Maybe there's no brain, there's no barrier in my brain between the right side and left side, you know, because I, I always thought of myself as a math and science kid, you know, a STEM kid, but I always love French and I minored in French at the Air Force Academy. I majored in applied math, but I minored in French. And uh, the best part about the academy was going to spend a semester in France at the French Air Force Academy in part because it made, because then I only had to spend seven months at our Air Force Academy. So it was good to get, <laughs> it was good to get away. Um, but yeah, I've always liked art and especially impressionism, but I've, but I like jets and rockets and science too. So I guess I'm just strange. And then I, I kind of have different interests. Yeah. Or, you know, like I see when I see jets and rockets and stuff like that is, you know, to me, that's really, 
that's a masterpiece. You know, it's a masterpiece mm -hmm. of engineering yeah. and aesthetics and, and the balance. shuttle was for sure. Yeah. The shuttle was for sure. Yeah. And to be able to sort of like anything that can function really well, but also, um, you know, looks nice. It's sort of like, that is really the highest form of art when it has the utilitarian aspect to it. And also, you know, it's especially like, you know, when you bring in the whole dimension of it's innovation, it's new, right. it's, it's never existed before. And it's something that people right. put together and we engineered around. And the fact that you can just put that in space and it actually works, you know, it's really a marvel of the mind that, that this even exists. It really is. You're right. Where, where did the motivation for starting the podcast come from? What, what is the drive to continue down this road of, of authoring books, spreading, you know, having yeah. the conversations that you're having and sharing this content right. with the world? You know, that's how you influence people and impact people and, you know, make a difference is by, I don't know, storytelling. If it's either through writing a book, like I said, I was doing a blog for a while, but I just got, I got doing other projects so much. I directed a film last year, two years ago now. Oh, wow. Yeah. One More Orbit. It's a really cool movie. If you get a chance, watch it. It's on Apple, I iTunes. And, yeah. It, uh, we set a world record flying around the earth in a jet uh, over the North and South Pole. And so I, the movie is comparing orbiting in an airplane with orbiting in a spaceship. And it's real. It's really about how exploration brings people together. There's, we stop in different countries, meet some different people. It was pretty cool. That's phenomenal. That sounds like something I would absolutely love. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious how, uh, with, with the changes that you've seen in the technology of the space, where would you like to see it or where could you imagine it to go in let's say half a century, 50 years? Space travel. Space travel. And you know what, you know, cause I know like one thing that SpaceX is, uh, alluded to is the possibility of using rockets for, you know, civilian travel. You could, mm -hmm. you know, go up into the upper atmosphere, go back down, land, yeah. and, uh, you know, cut a 12-hour flight into something like two hours or something. Oh, yeah. The, the, that's, that's definitely one thing. But for, for space travel, the one technology we need more than anything is, is nuclear-generated electricity. If we can get nuclear power making electricity in space, we can make rockets that go really fast. You could go back and forth to Mars in a year. Right now, using a normal traditional rocket, it's a three-year trip, which is too long for humans, in my opinion. So you can all you could also start to go to the outer planets, um, and you could use those nuclear power plants on the surface of the moon and Mars, which people will need. So I think nuclear-generated electricity in space is that is the one technology that will enable lots of other things so that that would be my focus wow so believe it or not i've actually had two mit nuclear scientists on the podcast at different times one worked on cool. project prometheus mm -hmm. uh, and i asked him about that exact thing it's like you know i'm always interested in what is a 10x multiplier what is a factor that yeah. if this one thing moved if this one N thing changed? nuclear power yeah so nuclear power in space the, yeah. the objection that he gave was the fact that in order to move through space, you essentially have to be losing weight. You have to be uh, basically dropping, you, you know, you have to propellant. be propellant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Is there anything, have you, you know, I, <laughs> I would wager a guess that you're, you're more up to date on the, the, uh, the science in this realm. There, there's one way to do it without that. 
Sorry, there's their- there's one way to do it without that without that, and that is solar power. You can make a solar sail. And in fact, there's going to be a, there have been several solar sail spaceships. Uh, there's going to be one, I think, on the first SLS launch. And instead of bringing your own propellant, you're basically using the sun as your propellant tank because it shoots off this radiation. And as the radiation hits the solar panel, that's what accelerates you. But you need to make a massive, the size of a city solar sail, and it needs to be you know thinner than a human hair. So, and then you can accelerate, you know, a Coke. Um, you know, you can't accelerate a giant spaceship full of people. And then the farther you get away from the sun, the less thrust you have because there's less radiation from the sun. So it's an interesting technology. But other than that, you need to have mass on your rocket that is getting shot out the back. Um, And the rocket equation tells you that the faster you shoot the propellant out the back, the faster you can go forwards. And um, a normal chemical rocket can only shoot if you mix fuel and oxygen, you, it will only go so fast. So the rocket can only go so fast. Um, if you take electricity, you can take um, an ion like helium or hydrogen or xenon or different gases and shoot them out the back um, probably four times as fast, many times faster, um, almost 10 times as fast as a chemical rocket, which means you can go many times faster in the forward direction. So that electric propulsion is, uh, that's the key. He was right. The problem is we have elections and we, we have parties and some parties don't like nuclear power. And some people think that nuclear waste is going to rain down and kill everybody. And of course it's not like the amount of nuclear waste coming from the sun every day is much more than the rocket has. Um, there was a, uh, uh, a piece of uranium or plutonium back in the sixties that that was powering a spaceship and the rocket blew up and they went out and they pulled it out of the ocean and they cleaned it, cleaned it up and put it in a new satellite. So, you know, there's no risk there, but unfortunately, you know, people don't always make rational decisions and it's hard, it's hard in America to get the political will to do that. In a place like China, it would be much easier. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's, that is very interesting. And you know, it's like, I hear something like that. It's like, how do we not put as much time, energy and effort as possible into funding these kinds of programs? And nuclear sort of had a similar, you know, absolute lull in interest, you know, yeah. from the, you know, sort of uh, a few news stories later. And all of a sudden, nobody's interested in the craziest technology that humans ever figured out about atomic, you know, right. atomic I, I, I just, I looked this up on online the number of people who have been killed by acute radiation sickness. Um, And it's not zero, but you can count them on one hand, I think, over the last 50 years. Basically, nobody ever dies from acute radiation poisoning, even Fukushima. Fukushima was terrible, but um, it, it wasn't this massive disaster. Every year, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people die from pollution, from coal plants and natural gas plants, right? I mean, carbon dioxide and it's changing the climate, which is killing people. So we're, we're just not rational. We have this completely, not completely clean because it makes waste, but we have this clean power source and we just don't use it at all because it's too dangerous. And we use this other source that kills us by the hundreds of thousands. Um, and we had a place in Yucca Mountain, Nevada to store nuclear waste for tens of thousands of years. 
Um, but Senator Reed canceled that project because it was so dangerous. Everybody was going to die. And I, like I've been, I've flown F-16s over the middle of Nevada. There is, that is a perfect place to put nuclear waste. There is nothing out there. <laughs> and, so in other words, I, well, the point I'm making is we make, when you make emotional belief-based decisions, that's really bad. You need to make rational fact-based decisions, not emotional, what you believe, um, because because making those is bad decisions has bad consequences, you know. Absolutely, and it's sort of this is the double-edged sword between the United States and China, which, as you mentioned earlier, they have no freedom of the press, and uh, so in one regard, they can completely disregard whatever uh, you know public opinion may right. uh, may be steering towards. Whereas in the United States, uh, you know, you have a little bit of uh, you have a a flashy story catches attention. People are aware of it. Check and balance. Yeah. It's a check and balance. And, and yeah. with that sort of, uh, you know, we've, we've stalled the nuclear industry for decades over, you know, sort of a lack of science. And then to top it off, you know, like there's, it's been a very, you know, big conversation around reducing carbon emissions and global, you know, uh, you know, reliance on fossil fuels and everything. And the same people that are usually, pushing that agenda the hardest are also anti-nuclear for whatever reason. It just makes no yeah. sense. It doesn't make any sense. The biggest example of making no sense is right after Fukushima happened, um, they had this election in Germany and they, um, they ended their nuclear industry on the spot. And so they started buying power from across the border in Czechoslovakia in the Czech Republic from a, Chernobyl Model 1A nuclear reactor, right? It was the so same Soviet reactor. It's for 40 kilometers, 25 miles across the border. And it's like, do, do you guys not realize the wind can blow from the east sometimes, you know? And um, it's just, it's unfortunate. And, you know, wind is great, but man, those windmills are dead bird machines. You know, they it's not good for birds and they're, they're kind of ugly and they only work when the wind blows and blah, blah, blah. So anyway we just don't always make the most rational, <laughs> the most rational decisions. Yeah. Which is, you know, if I was, if I was the leader of the, the Chinese, uh, you know, government, military, whatever, it's like, what it's like, there's almost no competition when that's, when that's your issue. And especially if you can infiltrate media and there's certainly no dissent, there is no meaningful dissent. They can, they, they do allow a certain amount of complaint. They, they're very good at population control. They they kind of give people what they want, but as long as they're getting richer and they have more money, that is what keeps them pacified. If everybody was dying of hunger, there'd be a massive revolution, but they're not. They've, they've brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, which is really good. And so they give them a little bit of, you know, a little bit of freedom there. But the, you know, the, when it comes to nuclear power, my, my, my view would be don't build them on fault lines where there's massive earthquakes on the board of the sea where there are tsunamis, <laughs> which was Fukushima, right? It was right in the middle of an earthquake zone, right on the ocean where the tsunamis come. So if you build them in the central German plains, I know Germany had some flooding recently, but you know, Germany's a pretty safe place. France is a pretty safe place. They don't have giant hurricanes or whatever. Even Turkey Point in Miami, the eye of Hurricane Andrew, one of the worst hurricanes in history, went right over Turkey Point nuclear power plant. It was fine. And like nothing happened. So um, as long as you're reasonably smart about it, those, those can operate pretty safely.
Yeah, I think that would just make way too much sense. So it's already <laughs> out of the question. Also, right. same story in California. There's actually every homeowner in California uh, who has a public utility company has to pay a nuclear decommissioning fee, which was when they, uh, they've they you know taken down and dismantled the nuclear power plants that were here in California just to import electricity from you know, the Pacific from, Northwest. From Texas. <laughs> yeah, and from Texas and right. to lose most of the electricity along the way. So it's sort of just like, it's like, yes, you've done one thing, but uh, you know, at what cost? It's insanity. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would you, uh, as far as, you know, do you think there's a realistic chance of this nuclear technology, nuclear technology coming to fruition? Are there any other sort of variables that you think need to change to sort of dramatically improve America's competitiveness in the space, uh, in the space industry? Well, NASA actually just let a contract for nuclear thermal rockets, which is a different technology that's using the heat from the nuclear fuel to shoot the exhaust out the back instead of using, instead of generating electricity and using electric fuel to shoot it out. It just uses heat to shoot it out. Um, it's more efficient than a chemical rocket, but you still, it doesn't give you the one year to Mars and back. It, it just makes getting to Mars cheaper, which is good. Um, so there is some movement in that direction, which I think is good, and I applaud. Um, a big problem is our avail is the availability of nuclear fuel because our nuclear industry has just been so gutted. America's just not processing uranium and plutonium the way we used to. So it's actually a big issue for NASA mission managers as to where to get the nuclear material for these missions from. So that's a, that's another big long pole in the tent is we just don't have the capability that we used to have for nuclear, um, both for nuclear weapons and also for peaceful nuclear things like space travel. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. Um, well, you know, I, I would, I'm very optimistic about nuclear and I feel like, you know, just even these conversations and, uh, you know, the other people out there that are talking about it the most, you know, hopefully that will have a positive effect on sort of the public psyche around it. And I think we're seeing things trend in the right direction. I hope they continue in that direction. Um, I want to ask you another question about what it's like to actually operate the equipment on something like this, the International Space Station. I think for many, they couldn't even imagine, they could never imagine it because it's like, well, how do you develop the confidence to even push the buttons, flipping switches, um, you know, in that training and everything like that? Like, how does the, how does one cultivate that? How does one, uh, so how do you wrap your head around what you're even doing in that environment? Um, you know, part of it is the, the training I had is coming in. I was a pilot, right? So I was 21 years old flying jets in the Air Force, actually 20 years old flying jets in the French Air Force. Um, and so I, I've always been used to being in charge and operating something that's dangerous and fast and, you know, could kill you. So that, that was really helpful. And we take their young astronauts who aren't pilots and we put them through a flying program where they don't necessarily become pilots, but they can fly in these supersonic T-38 jet trainers that we have and operate as crew members and help navigate and talk on the radio and be part of the crew, not just passengers. So that's, I think that's probably the biggest confidence booster is, is aviation, especially fast jet aviation, which is something there's no better analog for space travel than that for any astronaut. Wow. That's interesting. Are there, is there like, are, are you seeing in this space, enough talent moving in that direction or, or sort of motivated to become astronauts? Is there a lack of people? When I spoke with the MIT nuclear scientists, 
I asked them, what's the number one thing to propel the nuclear industry? They said, we need more students who are interested in this. And that is like the yeah. absolute mission critical problem. Yeah. What is there a similar situation in the space industry? No, there's when NASA puts out an application, for, you know, for to be an astronaut, they get over 10,000 applicants each time. Uh, there's lots of people that are willing. Now they're not all qualified, but lots of them are. I mean, you know, probably a majority of them are because it's a pain to go through the process. So if you're going to put in that much work, you probably have to have at least some shot. So that is something that um, is not a problem. Although getting the engineers and to support this, because you got a, hand, a few astronauts and tens of thousands of engineers and stuff that need to support them. So that's the thing that we need to keep the pipeline going. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a CEO of an oil and gas company. And he was saying that, man, they can't find enough talent. Like if you're an engineer, put your application in. And this is just in the very recent, like in the last few months, we went from this, the job market is terrible to they can't hire enough people. Um, he said something interesting. He said, if you're willing to work in an office, you're, you go to the top of the pile because there's so many people who don't want to work in offices. Um, and there, there's a real, I think, shortage of talented people. You know, in manufacturing, it's a high tech industry now. It used to be in the 50s, it was just this manual labor factory kind of thing. Nowadays, manufacturing is mostly done by computers. So you need real skills to run those machines. And, you know, I think a lot of community colleges have programs that can teach you that. I know welding here in the Houston area is in huge demand. And those guys make money. I mean, they make like a hundred grand a year or more. Um, that's a really good skill to have. And so there's, uh, I, I would say as far as the economy goes, um, everything changes, things change constantly. And COVID really helped me look at my own life. And, you know, if what I was doing wasn't working, now's a good time to switch. And, uh, you know, if you're kind of stuck in a dying industry, you need to mentally drag yourself out of it and put yourself in a growing industry. Um, the down to earth podcast that I was telling you about, uh, with Kuzat down to earth with Terry Virts, Kuzat and Arben, and they, they started this company that teaches people how to code, um, and you have to sign up to go for seven months. It's a serious life commitment, um, but you don't need a college degree and they'll teach you how to code, how to be a computer person. And those jobs pay really well. I think their average starting salary is like 90,000 or something. Um, and they target the minimum wage people that need to bring themselves out of that because it doesn't pay the bills. And that's, so that's a really cool thing, but you have to have that mental toughness to change what you're doing. And that's not, that's not an easy thing to do. And then if you got kids and bills and, you know, sometimes you, you have to make sacrifices, but in the long run, if you're able to do it, it can really change your life. Well, I, I certainly align with that philosophy. It's really like the nature of knowledge without college is the idea you can, you know, the information is out there. There are other programs. There's probably even more effective programs than going yeah. and getting sort of a, a degree in a field that doesn't have any immediate market value. So, right. to, you know, sort of pursue the skills and the opportunities that, uh, that exist out there without going through these, you know, some of these, say, more ancient institutions right. that, you know, don't right. really equip you, even with basic financial literacy, like you mentioned earlier, uh, with, right. or any of the other skills that are immediately valuable in the marketplace. So I love to hear right. that. I'm really looking forward to listening to that podcast. Yeah. Check out the podcast because it's good. And it's something, you know, if you have friends that are kind of stuck they're they don't have a career or whatever, um, what they're offering is life-changing and it's not a degree. It's not a college degree, but it's 
like super, it's, it's studying for seven months. It's a hard, it's not, you know, it's a lot of learning. It's just not an official college degree. Well, if that gets you a high value, uh, you know, if that makes you more valuable in the marketplace and gets right. you a skill set that is, you know, it's a six figure or even similar paying position, right. uh, you know, you're much more suited for it, it or it could be much better investment than college or, or many college right. educations. And, exactly. you know, I think it's sort of an interesting dynamic with college right now because, there's a lot of people that should also just go into trades rather than going right. through these kind of useless degree programs. Like you mentioned, they could go into yeah. welding and have an immediately valuable skill that absolutely is essential for innovation and technology, but rather they're getting, you know, liberal arts degrees at whatever right. college and spending the time. If you can run automated manufacturing machines, they can't hire enough people to do that. You know, um, there are definitely some skills out there. Now, look, they're not going to pay a million dollars a year. But, you know, you can you can approach six figures a year, which you can have a nice middle class lot. You know, you can put your kids through college and have a nice house and take a vacation. So, you know, there, there are ways to make a good living. Um, and yeah, college is not for everybody. It is for some people. And there's there's definitely value in education, not not training, but like being widely read is a good thing to have for a lot of people. But, you know, the bottom line is everybody needs some skills and there's other ways to get skills rather than take taking philosophy class at, at a four year college. Absolutely. Like I, I'm also a huge uh, believer in the the wide education, studying the classics and having a, a you know, to have a, 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 a classical education is to have an understanding of, you know, art, engineering, science, mathematics, literature, um, and all those things, which, you know, at least going through the things that built up Western civilization uh, or the influences that built us uh, up to this point, uh, yeah. I think is critical to understanding where we're going, which is, yeah. again, what's so exciting about what you've done your career uh, really being on the forefront on the, on the, you know, needles tip of uh, innovation and exploration and in such a way that, you know, it's, it's uh, I, you know, I fear that the the dream was about to be extinguished of, you know, humans becoming interplanetary and mm -hmm. having that, you know, a new, a new uh, frontier to conquer. I think, you know, without that, we would just turn inward and, you know, sort of collapse on ourselves, but with, uh, the space program with this technology uh, expanding so quickly and people getting more interested in it again, it's super exciting to see what doors that opens up, you know, and it's, it's like an exponential experience for humans to go from one planet to perhaps, uh, you know, dominating a galaxy. So it's <laughs> all the motivation and ambition. Like Darth Vader. Yes. Yes. Me. <laughs> hopefully not in that way, but, um, or, you know, hopefully not in, uh, in a bad way, but more so right. like, you know, this kind of brings it full circle to what we talked about in the beginning. How do you develop ambition? How do you train ambition? And yeah. in my mind, there just has to be space to, to grow. And if you don't have this, yeah. oh, then you're never going to want to get there. Yeah. I've, I've, this is something I've wondered about since the nineties. Like, how do you train a kid to be ambitious? And I think one of the things is you don't do everything for them. You know, you kind of, if their room's a mess, then their room's a mess or, you know, if they're not eating dinner, then they don't eat or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you just have to have a little bit of tough love um, and give them a broad uh, experience. So let them code on a computer and take them to the library to read books and take them to the art museum and take them to the space center, whatever, give, you know, take them to base, let them play sports, whatever. Every, every human has gifts and talents that they've been given. So I guess expose them to some of that and then try and let them do it on their own. Cause like my, I did everything on my own. My parents 
supported me, but they didn't do stuff for me. And, and that I tried to do that with my kids. I probably helped them too much, but they, they, they're, they're good kids. That's okay. Um, so th- those are some thoughts, but self-motivation and ambition is a tough one. Oh, I'm in the same boat with you. I feel like my parents are the same thing. They, they allowed us to experiment, you know, check out a bunch of different things and it's very much just self-driven. And, but I think, again, it's like having that space to do that is, you know, that's like the kindling and all you need is a spark from there to, you know, see that motivation, ambition sort of expand into something that, uh, you know, might've, t- might take you someplace that you would never imagined, which mm-hmm. you know, is, you know, really the ultimate, ultimate You've experience, never right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Terry, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I feel like, again, I could ask you questions probably for 10 hours straight. Uh, (laughs) You know, I could go just keep going down this rabbit hole. But could you uh, tell the audience where to find you online and and how to interact with you best? Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Astro Terry, Astro underscore Terry at uh, Instagram. I got a website, terryverse.com. Uh, the book that just came out is called How to Astronaut. It's um, a collection of 51 short, very short essays about all aspects of space travel, some stuff you'd expect, some stuff you wouldn't expect. So um, I wrote it for non-space nerds, like average man, woman, whatever, to read by the People pool. People like me. It's a good, it's a good <laughs> yeah, it's a good summer book. And then um, I've got my new podcast out, Down to Earth with Terry Verts. And I talked I talk to a broad range of people to say the least. I had two, the two guys, Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo, who are the UFO experts. Um, I had Kuzat Narbonon, you know, the, the immigrant starting a business story. I've had some space guys on, I had uh, Bob Hendricks from the Negro league baseball museum. We were talking baseball. Wow. He, he, he's amazing. He's a great guy. So I love baseball. That's my thing. Had uh, the CEO from guide dogs for the blind. Um, Michael Steele, the former RNC chairman, was on, wow. he, he just dropped uh, today. So fantastic. Very, very broad, broad range for sure. Well, I'm excited to dive into that, uh, that library. That sounds phenomenal. I'm glad that you're doing that. I'm glad that you're writing all these books and, you know, getting out there publicly. Cause again, you know, having a sort of a waypoint or someone who's, who's done some really unbelievable things with their career and expanded in so many different verticals is, you know, it's, that's inspiring by itself. And again, I think it cause for motivation. Terry, is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with any final asks, requests, or anything like that? Words <laughs> of wisdom? Um, you know, I, glass is half full, glass half empty. There's so many things going on. COVID has killed so many people. It's been an awful year and a half. There's just you know, the China threat, there's hacking, there's, it's just a constant barrage of bad news. And so we need to, um, I think, have some positive positivity out there, some good vibes and things are going to get better. When you see the planet from space, you can see some of the pictures I took there in the background. Wow. You you realize that, you know, things are not as bad as they seem (laughs) sometimes. So we're going to get through this. Um, We need to strengthen our democracy that is on our to-do list. And, uh, you know, get vaccinated. If we all get vaccinated, this thing's going to end. America is so blessed. We are so lucky to have so many vaccines um, and we need to just get it done. So it en- COVID ends here and and start giving the vaccines to other countries. Africa is only 1% vaccinated. So they, they could sure use some of these vaccines that we're hoarding. So we need to get it done here so we can finish COVID and move on with life. Well, yes, I certainly want to move on with life uh, and on to new frontiers. So all right, Terry, thank you so much for your time. Again, it's been phenomenal. And uh, I recommend everyone check out 
you know, buy your book, listen to your podcast down to earth. And I'm looking forward to listening to it as well. Thank you again. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.